All right. Good morning, everyone. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> we left off in Dr. Scare's book on page 80, Christ's Death as a Moral Example. We've spent quite a bit of time on Christ's death as the vicarious atonement. And now we shift over, I, I mean, still under the, uh, under the overarching heading of the sacrificial death of Christ, and we, and we begin to contemplate it under this idea as Christ's death as moral example. And there are ways to misunderstand this, and there are ways to correctly understand this. Dr. Scare's taking us, and, you know, we just covered the first paragraph last week, and in that paragraph he's already pointing out some of the negative tendencies that go along with those who adhere to the moral example, chiefly when the moral example eclipses the vicarious atonement. You see this, for example, and it's the one who really originates this in name, uh, Abelard, is originating this over and against Anselm. <clears throat> Excuse me, Anselm. So, uh, Two things to note. The first, on, on page 80, the first sentence, well, the first two sentences, already mentioned a desire, as already mentioned, a desire to emphasize Christ's life and death as a moral example often leads to a denial of his death as a propitiatory sacrifice. This theory is known as the exemplary theory of the atonement. Okay, well, we've talked about the problematic language of theory, so I don't need to hit that again. But, again, the moral example is sometimes used to eclipse the idea that Christ is a propitiatory sacrifice. Now, we don't want to do that. Again, that's sort of Abelard's way. The other thing that Scare points out by way of uh, reminder of the potential for errors here, in, and I won't make you try to find this place in the paragraph. But in the paragraph he says, the moral theory of the atonement is a psychological process resembling an aberrant understanding of sanctification. And that line is especially germane for us because this is what happens in radical Lutheranism, where it's not so much uh, Christ and him crucified that matters as much as it's the promise received in the ears of uh, an unbelieving individual. Right? It's not a change in effect in God where, where the cross reconciles God who is holy to we who are unholy, but rather it is a change inside the person when the promise comes into his ears and he believes. Now, if you could kind of put the two together, you might be able to make that work in one way, shape, or form, but Radical Lutheranism, uh, radical Lutheranism doesn't. A radical Lutheranism denies the vicarious atonement of Christ and sets forward this idea that justification is what happens inside the person when the promise goes into your ears. Once you, once you realize that it's a replacement theology, 
uh, and, and you realize that technically speaking, these are mutually exclusive, then you see the problem. And you actually see how strangely radical Lutheranism actually fits within this moral paradigm and fits within an older tradition of using the moral paradigm to negate the vicarious paradigm. All right, well, those were the two things we discussed last week and really summarize the first paragraph on page 80. Let's move on uh, to the next paragraph in the new material for us. There, Dr. Scare writes, in a less radical form, the moral influence theory of the atonement appeared in German pietism and English puritanism, which did not deny the atonement as payment for sin, but placed the major emphasis on following the example set by Christ. Here's the key sentence, I think moral renewal rather than justification and atonement stood at the center of their theologies. So that would be to have the uh, emphasis on the wrong syllable. That would be to have the internal life as the heart and center of Christianity. And oh, that business on the cross, well, that was just an unfortunate thing that happened 2,000 years ago. I guess it was technically necessary because then it allows me to improve morally uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, that would be a caricature, to be sure, of pietism, puritanism, this idea that moves everything inside and only makes what takes place outside on the cross of Christ secondary, an asterisk to one's own theology. Okay, so once more from Scare, moral renewal rather than justification and atonement stood at the center of their theologies. I think you see that very frequently today in American evangelicalism, where if you go and you sit in church service, it's, it's often panned as 10 steps to a better this or seven steps to a better that or your 40-day plan for improving this. Again, the focus isn't on Christ or his work on the cross. The focus is on you and your self-improvement. Now, where you have that in evangelical land all around us, then you have the overreaction of uh, contemporary radical Lutheranism that says it's only about Christ and it has nothing to do with what's inside of you. It has nothing to do with an internal change. So you can see how it's just going from one error to the other error, whereas the truth is in the middle. Here, Emphasis is probably the best way to wrap your head around it, though we could certainly do so more formally. But the emphasis should be on Christ and him crucified outside of us. And then secondarily, that that affects an internal change in us. And that internal change in us, properly defined, is what we call sanctification. So then you have this clean break between justification, what Christ is doing on the cross outside of us for us, God being reconciled to us through the blood of Jesus. And then that change that is wrought within us, that regeneration called sanctification. So we have a distinction between justification and sanctification. The two are an organic whole. When one is justified, one begins to be sanctified. They're an organic whole, so they're connected, they're one. And yet we can make this distinction. What happens outside of us versus what happens inside of us. Make sense? Okay. Yes. 
Right. I, if you're, so the question is, relates to the, for those of you online who maybe couldn't hear, the question relates to the law and its use in the Christian, and especially the Christian as one who still has the old Adam clinging to it, as we all do. And I think much too much is made of trying to parse this out. Uh, in fact, I don't see a great deal of this, for example, in the large catechism. What I do see is this idea that the new man within us loves the law of God, and that new man within us from time to time sees that our fleshly desires do not want to follow the law of God. And so we force ourselves to do it, even against our will, as it were. But it's still I who am doing it, even though it's against my will. So it's both with my will and against my will, do you see? That part that is of my will that is aligned with God's word, that's the new man. That part that is dragging his, his feet and doesn't want to do it, that's the old Adam. And the proper, the proper response here is to confess our sinful nature to God, to confess this, you know, let's, let's make it concrete. Let's say it's um, something like giving your, giving your weekly offering or offering alms or something to the poor. Let's say it's something concrete like that. And you find in your heart when you go to write the check or hand the money over, you find conflict in your heart. You find this voice in your heart saying, well, you should do this or that instead or, you know. Okay, so what, it, what is a Christian to do in that situation? Look, look to the law of God, uh, look to the words of Christ, and crucify the flesh within us by doing the good deed. And then we simultaneously confess to God that we haven't done so in purity, not with unity of heart, that the old Adam has raised up his ugly head and tainted the good work with bad stuff. So we confess it as sin and we still do the good work. So. Um, in, in relationship, I know that that makes simple a very complex question, but in, in relationship to the law, the Christian is not under the condemnation of the law. That we have been set free from by Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that only means then that the law becomes to us a, a joy and a delight. And that's precisely what Paul says. I, I delight in the law in my inner man because that law is the will of God. If you could snap your fingers and live perfectly according to the law, wouldn't you do it? Of course. I mean, every Christian would say, absolutely, conform me right now. You know, what God intends for us is not a quick, easy fix, but what he intends for us is to learn and grow and mature and become strong so that uh, we have practice as he puts these things to death and as we participate in that, as we cooperate in that, as the formula of Concord says. Um, we learn ourselves to put these things to death. So that's what God would have for us. All right. Well, let's uh, pick back up where we left off on page 80. And I think we were uh, three lines from the bottom of page 80. The most characteristic exponents of the theory overemphasize the life of Jesus as a standard which Christians are to follow to gain salvation. The theory is synergistic, okay, in the paradigm of justification, synergistic, working together with God for salvation. So the theory is synergistic because it highly prizes man's spiritual endowments and demands moral works of true followers of Christ. In its classical form, the moral theory of the atonement pays more attention to what its advocates consider to be moral behavior in Christ's life. 
All right, so just put your finger there for a quick comment before we resume. That's the other thing you notice with those who put forward the moral theory or of the atonement, the more example, to the exclusion of the others. And one of the problems with it is it's not simply following Christ on the whole. Emphasis is put only on or primarily on the moral aspects, the moral aspects. So, for example, it's frequently not emphasized that Christ on the cross by being afflicted by God and remaining faithful to him is doing the greatest good work the world has ever seen. That's sort of moved out of the way and it's more like, um, you know, yes, but, but look at how Jesus was kind to the poor. So a sort of superficial moral treatment as opposed to an all-encompassing following of Christ. Does that make sense? So it, gets, so it gets shallowed out to be a good boy just like Jesus was a good boy, as opposed to uh, the fullness of who Christ was as, as true God, but especially true man, and then following in his footsteps as true man. All right, picking back up with Scare, the moral view of the atonement requires either a high understanding of man's moral capabilities or a truncated view of Christ's life with little attention paid to his death. So again, these are characteristic of those who use the moral example to replace the vicarious atonement. All right, Scare continues, the, obje the objectionable features of the moral theory of the atonement have led some to conclude that it has no part in confessional Lutheran Christology and consequently has no biblical support. Such a negative assessment may be too hasty. So here now, Scare is going to pivot and give us the proper way to understand the moral example. And, and again, when we think of the atonement, in whatever ways the scriptures speak, we want to speak. That's really precisely the, what theology is. As the scriptures speak, we want to speak. And so if we're thinking in terms of these motifs or quote-unquote theories of atonement, we want to embrace the vicarious theory of atonement just as the scriptures do. We want to embrace the, embrace the moral theory of the atonement just in the way the scriptures do. And then we're going to see in the next chapter the Christus Victor, and we'll talk about that, and that would be the third of the three major. And we want to talk about that in just the way the scriptures do. That's the point. All right, so, and this is where Scare pivots, an altogether negative assessment may be too hasty. Uh, fourth line down in that first full paragraph on 81. Though the Christian life is normally seen under the third article of the creed with the work of the Holy Spirit, the small catechism sees the Christian redeemed by the blood of Christ as living under him in his kingdom, and serving him in everlasting righteousness. And that comes from Small Catechism, Article 2, uh, Section 4 there. Significant biblical references to the death of Jesus as atonement are frequently found in pericopes in which the Christian is expected to follow the example of Christ. 
the moral view of the atonement, understood as the Christian's involvement in Christ's suffering, is not only proper, but necessary for a complete understanding of his death. Perhaps the most objectionable feature of this view is that it is called the moral theory of the atonement. The word moral may too easily suggest a confusion of law and gospel. Christ did not redeem man in order to place him under bondage to the demands of the law, but precisely to free mankind from the curse of the law. This aside, the moral view of the atonement, understood as following the example of Christ, especially in his suffering and death, is a New Testament teaching. And Scare is going to give us some of those, but um, just whoever would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. So there is, what does it mean to follow Christ? It's precisely in the shape of the cross. The cross is the atonement. So following him is in the shape of the cross. That's the moral theory of the atonement. And again, you can see where moral as a word doesn't quite get there, does it? Because it's not merely the moral. It is the moral, but it's much more than that. It's much more than that. All right, well, Scare's going to give us some other biblical background on why this moral example or theory of the atonement, the more, excuse me, the moral example theory is, uh, is biblical. In Philippians 2, 1 through 8, Christians are urged to have the same mind as the God-man, who has humiliated himself even to a death by crucifixion. The goal here is not simply moral behavior by avoiding the evils prohibited by the Ten Commandments, but putting others before oneself as Christ did by his life and death. Burial with Christ by baptism requires an extinguishing of the sinful nature. Colossians 2 and Romans 6 both teach this. The classic statement of the death of Christ as an atonement is expressed by Christ himself in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, that the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. This description of the sacrificial view of the atonement is not set forth within a doctrinal discussion about his death. It comes at the conclusion of a debate among the disciples about the exercise of power and authority. The death of Christ is linked immediately to sanctification, the Christian life. The first and greatest in the kingdom is the one who serves as slave, following the example of the Son of Man, whose service was to give his life as a ransom. The act of the atonement belongs to Jesus himself, but Christians demonstrate their belonging to him by giving their lives for others. The same close connection between Jesus' death as atonement and example is found in 1 Peter 2.21. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps.
So do you see there how you have uh, both the atonement and the example right there in that text? Christ also suffered for you. There's the atonement, the vicarious atonement or substitutionary atonement, leaving you an example. There's the, what is being called the, the moral example. In the small catechism, Luther uses his explanation of the significance of baptism as the place to discuss the effectiveness of the death of Christ in the Christian life with support from Romans 6.4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The moral influence theory of the atonement in its classical form requires the Christian to model his life after Christ. As far as this goes, it is right. Christ's life must be seen as a life destined and shaped by his death. The Christian lives his life dying with Christ and in his own death shares in Christ's death. Yeah, so this is a beautiful statement. Um, in being baptized into Christ, we are buried with him and raised with him so that every day it is a constant putting to death of the old Adam in us and a resurrecting of the new man within us. And that's our life as Christians. And so every single day of our lives are conformed into the image of Christ in precisely this way. And then too, when you look at our lives as a whole, we go into death precisely joining Christ in his death. Um, and we are thus raised because we are joined with him and thus participate in his resurrection. So Romans 6 is your foundation there, but if you recall from your small catechism, it's taught there as well. All right, that brings us to the end of the chapter. And we've spent a great deal of time on the vicarious or substitutionary uh, aspect of atonement. And now we've been looking at the example aspect of the atonement. Any questions you have on this uh, rather lengthy, rather deep chapter. Yes, I see one in the back. I'll do my best to translate for those of you online. So, is atonement how we are The question is, is atonement how we are saved? And if you define it as such, then how is the moral theory not Roman Catholicism? Right. So, so right. Uh, here we're making a distinction. We're using atonement much more broadly, much more broadly. Certainly, Dr. Scare isn't advocating that we're justified by our life in Christ or by our sanctification or by our following his example. So there is a nuance there we can put between the, the language of atonement, which we can understand more generally or more specifically. Uh, and here, when we talk about theories of atonement or atonement motifs, we should think much more loosely just in terms of the theme of what the cross means. That would probably be a better way. Atonement can take on the narrow, tight definition of justification, but that's not how it's being used here. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. Not quite sure how to summarize that, you know, as well as you did for those online. But you know, just just noticing that as you're as you're waging war against one theological error, you tend to expose yourself to another theological error. 
and, and you also, and I would add one more aspect to that, in waging war against this error over here, you have a tendency to become puffed up and blinded to the fact that you might be overdoing it. Yeah, yeah. and that, that's um, not unique to our generation. Even when you look back at the controversies from which the formula of Concord come, back in the 16th century, that's often the case, that otherwise orthodox, good, solid Lutheran theologians who are on the right side of everything in combating some error, they end up falling into another error, and then when called out by their peers, pride and arrogance, yeah, and then there's a rift, and then there's a confessional document that has to be made. So this goes, of course, much, much earlier than the... Uh, in the 16th century, it goes all the way back through church history. It's just one of the co most common dynamics. So to try to, again, I think formally speaking, it's bind yourself to God's word as much as you can. Okay? And that's, um, that's how you're going to be objective and avoid these errors. In confronting error, realize that you can push yourself into an opposite error and try to balance against that. Oftentimes, that means asserting two different things that are taught in the scriptures but aren't satisfying to our reason. In fact, it's, it's been stated before, and I've, I've restated this from time to time myself, that that's, a, that's about this side of heaven, the closest you can come to understanding any given article of the faith is when you can assert its two contraries or its two opposites. If you think of any article of the faith, there's, there's, almost, there's almost always one error and then the opposite error. And the truth is filtering out both errors while keeping both kernels of truth and, and holding those together. So, I mean, I, I, could give a, I could give a ton of examples, but I won't bother with that. Yeah, that's the art and way of theology. Yeah. All right. Any other thoughts on, uh, on the sacrificial death of Christ? All right. Well, this next chapter is, uh, is a difficult topic. A difficult topic. So this is Christ's descent into hell. And, uh, of course, we confess this in the Apostles' Creed. Let's jump into this on page 83. First, a quote from the Formula of Concord, the Solid Declaration, one of our Lutheran confessions. Here in the burial and descent into hell are differentiated as distinct articles. And we simply believe that after the burial, the entire person, God and man, descended into hell, conquered the devil, destroyed hell's power, and took from the devil all his might. A few things I will point out, and I'm going to point out, <laughs> this is not going to be a very satisfying chapter, because probably you're going to leave this chapter with more questions than you have answers. That's probably what's going to happen. The language of, of hell, infernum, or um, Gehenna, or Hades, all of this language of hell is really fluid. That's, that's part of our problem in trying to figure this out. By fluid, I mean that this language can mean hell proper, 
the place of damned souls. It can also mean death. And there are various ways to understand death or the realm of the dead. But that's part of the difficulty here, is the language itself. What, what some people think, and Scare brings it up here, it's just not the position of the confessions. At least at the time where they're writing it in church history, it's no longer a tenable position for them. It may well be the case that at least in some early Christian communities, the language of the descent into hell simply was descriptive of his being buried. Okay? So that he was buried and descended into hell would be, think about it this way, he was buried and went into death, went into the realm of the dead. Even if you just view that poetically, okay, that's what it would be saying. I'll double check, I'll try to remember to double check this next week. But this line doesn't appear in any creed until something like the early 5th century. So it's rather late. If it's not that, it's probably the late 4th. But I'll double check on that and get back to you. So that, that too adds a layer of complexity. How does this come in? Why does it come in so late? Unlike other lines in the creed, which all seem to be addressing some sort of specific doctrinal error, we have a hard time figuring out what doctrinal error this confession might be against. So again, a lot of complexity. But look at this opening line. Here in the burial and descent into hell are differentiated as distinct articles. So what's being said there is we're going to treat these as separate clauses. And again, that was just the state of the art in the 16th century and has been ever since. I mean, much earlier than the 16th century, too. It's not like the Lutherans invented this. They're simply setting this forward. And um, in other words, the line about was crucified, died, and was buried. That buried is he died and was put into the tomb and descended into hell means he actually goes to a place called hell. Okay? So it's not just he died and entered the realm of the dead. That's not a, that's not a position our confessions allow us to hold. Okay? So that's the first line. Continuing then mid-sentence with the quote from the formula, and we simply believe that after the burial, the entire person, God and man, descended into hell. So here's the second position. And uh, so in what sense, if once you've said that Christ actually descends into a place called hell, does he descend there in only his divine nature? Does he ascend, descend there in only his soul? Or does he descend there also in his human nature and thus also in a body? That's the next question. And the answer given by our confessions is that he descends as God and man. That is, he descends into hell in his body. And we'll see, we'll see why, why we need to hold to that. What did he do when he was there? That's the next question. <laughs> and this is more complicated. But here in this quote, he conquered the devil, destroyed hell's power, and took from the devil all his might. So did he descend into hell in his body as true God and true man in order to suffer? No. No. He went to conquer the devil, destroy hell's power, take from the devil all his might, etc. 
All right. So right there, already in that first opening quote, you can see three major controversies uh, being discussed or answer being given to those three major controversies. In the first place, descent into hell doesn't simply mean he died. In the second place, he descended into hell as God and man in his body. And when he was there, he didn't suffer, but rather conquered the devil, destroyed hell's power, and took from the devil all his might. In other words, what he was doing there was part of what we would call his exaltation, not his humiliation. He wasn't there to suffer. He wasn't under Satan's power. He wasn't getting whipped. Uh, he wasn't praying that God would let him out. Um, I, quite, quite frankly, it would be almost the opposite. The devil would be praying that he, he would be sent out because the devil didn't care for Christ's presence there, especially victorious, risen from the dead, having conquered sin and death, and now the devil. All right. So, three major controversies dealt with right off the bat in that opening quotation from the formula. Scare writes, the article on Christ's descent into hell is the only one in the Apostles' Creed to be specifically addressed by an article in the Lutheran Confessions. Christ's descent into hell is Article 9 of the Formula of Concord, and appropriately follows the one on Christology. It's also a very short article, by the way. The historic reason for its inclusion in the Formula of Concord was the assertion in 1549 by a Lutheran pastor, Superintendent Johannes Apenis of Hamburg, that Christ's death into hell was an explanation of his suffering. All right, so Apinus in the 16th century, Lutheran uh, theologian, says when Christ descended into hell, he was suffering there. That's not right. The scriptures never indicate that whatsoever. In fact, the scriptures indicate otherwise. And so uh, this had to be this had to be rebutted and refuted, and was so it was in Article uh, 9 of the formula. Okay? Afterwards. Yes? Is there anywhere in the Bible that says, that indicates that Jesus descended into hell? Okay, so the question is, is there anywhere in the Bible that indicates that Jesus descended into hell? The short answer is, uh, yes, but people point at different, at different passages. What we're going to see Dr. Scare point at primarily is going to be 1 Peter chapter 3, and then he's going to give us some others. Uh, Romans 10 is another, um, Luke 8.31, Revelation 23. So when we get, when we get uh, forward, we'll sort of lay the biblical foundation we have here. Again, this is a... This is a controversial article in itself and the treatment the historical treatment of it in the formula of concord in the 16th century is really limited in scope it is really it's not meant to lay out the entire doctrine of the descent into hell it's really meant to just contradict the false theology of apinus who is saying that when christ went down there he went to suffer so the Lutherans are going to be against that, but they're not really laying a whole foundation. Laying a whole foundation is actually quite controversial. 
Because if you look in the history of the church, the early church fathers quote a whole bunch of different verses that we don't quote, um, that we don't, we don't see that way or tend not to see that way. And in fact, some of the ones that we tend to see is so definitive, like, for example, 1 Peter 3, they really didn't even use until much later, and even then with some asterisks. So this is a, this is a, a, a very difficult, very complicated article of Christian, of Christian doctrine. And in some respects, we're simply picking up in the 16th century, kind of ignoring all of the, all of the undercurrents, we're picking up at the 16th century, denouncing this specific error and saying, nope, that's not in keeping with the, the small c Catholic tradition. Um, here's, here's the, we're going we're gonna to contradict that without setting further bounds. This is all we're going to say um, in response to that error. So we shouldn't look at Article 9 as the end-all be-all of what we can say as Lutherans. We should just look at it as the correction of an error, and we want to assert what that article asserts, to be sure but we're allowed freedom in other areas in regard to this article. So we'll look at the, we'll look at the biblical foundation at least somewhat here uh, with Scary. And I, if I have some extra time as we go through this, maybe I'll bring in some um, additional resources so you can get a flavor for how the, how the early church thought about this article or thought at least about this concept. Because as I said, it doesn't come formally into a creed until something like the early 5th or late 4th century, but that doesn't mean it wasn't around. You see, and so can you? You can find it very, very early. I mean, I think at least as early as Irenaeus, you can find this idea of the descent into hell in one way, shape, or form. So it's a very early teaching. It's not like it just appears, but it doesn't make its way into a creed until rather late. All right. So. That gives us a little bit of the historical circumstance. Now, that, that was uh, 1549 when Apinus makes this assertion. The next line gives us another data point. A sermon Luther preached at Torgau on April 16 and 17, 1533. So note the date. This is much earlier than Apinus's error. Luther preaches this sermon at Torgau which held that, quote, the entire person, God and man, with body and soul undivided, end quote, went to hell, was used by the writers of the formula of Concord to explain this somewhat troubling little phrase in the creed. So, Again, chronologically, you've got, all this, you've got all this going on for 1,500 years about the descent into, into hell. Luther preaches a sermon on this in 1533. It's an excellent sermon, by the way. It's fantastic. And uh, then in 1549, Apinus asserts this false doctrine that Christ went down to uh, suffer. And so what the formula does in Article 9 to combat this is basically makes Luther's Torgau sermon authoritative. So that goes back in time to Luther's sermon. It says, Luther already dealt with this. It's not like you say, but it's like Luther says. So Article 9 points us to the Torgau sermon as authoritative. Now, as Scare hints at, this is a troubling little phrase in the creed. That is, it's difficult. And then the final sentence of this paragraph, the matter of the descent into hell 
is complex because there was little consensus among the early church fathers or contemporary, or contemporary commentators on its meaning. All right, so that's, that's probably worth highlighting and underlining because that really is uh, the frame to keep all these things in mind is that from the earliest days, this has been complex, controversial. There wasn't consensus. Uh, maybe, the, maybe the chief divisions in the early church period related to the question of what, what was happening when Jesus descended into hell. Now, I don't think any of them, or at least none of the major ones, were saying that he went down to suffer. That wasn't the issue. But what did he go down to do? Um, was he... Uh, was he setting some of the Old Testament patriarchs who had believed in him who were in hell free and taking them out? That's one position. Was he there preaching to unbelievers uh, so that some of them might be converted? Was, that was one position. Was he down there grabbing, uh, not only preaching, but grabbing everyone and utterly emptying hell entirely so that in the end everyone is saved? That was another position. So all of these positions were floating around in the early church. Um, obviously, we are Lutherans. We're not universalists. So we've got, uh, plus, it is appointed for a man to, to die and then face the judgment. We don't believe in a second chance either. And so we can negate a few of these theories, uh, you know, right, right off the bat. But uh, they were still there. And that's what, that's what Dr. Scare means by this doctrine's complex because there's little consensus among the early church fathers. It's in most of the other major articles of the creed, if not all of them, you can basically find consensus amongst the church fathers. Okay, so there's paragraph one. Any thoughts, any questions, comments? All right. Yes, sir. I don't think this is important at all. <laughs> yeah, the question, the question was, how important do you think this is? Um, I don't think the controversies are important. I think, I think that the point of the confessions is that we don't get the wrong idea about the personal work of Jesus. We don't get the idea that he somehow went down into hell and was tortured there by the devil. I think that's, I think that's very important to get that right. Okay. I think it's very important to not create some kind of theory about the descent into hell that contradicts other very clear passages of the scriptures. I think that's very important. But you can see that I'm kind of defining its importance by way of negative. Just don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Okay, and, and that's where the importance lies. Positively speaking, I think there's a great deal of freedom here, to be honest. I think that the bounds are fairly wide. As long as you're not contradicting the scriptures, as long as you're asserting things that Christians have asserted before, you're not you know, creating some novelty, I think there's a great deal of freedom. I think you see this kind of freedom in the language of, uh, of the confessions and in the language of Luther's Torgau sermon. L look again at the very top quotation there. Descended into hell, conquered the devil, destroyed hell's power, and took from the devil all his might. Good luck finding biblical proof texts for that. And yet, what else could it be? He triumphed over him in the cross. 
He triumphed over him in the resurrection, and here he is to assert his dominion over the devil. I mean, so even if you can't find a proof text for each one of these clauses, is it not nonetheless true? Sure. Absolutely. So, in, in other words, in terms of stating a positive theology, just very critically, that then is, is subject to, you know, a, 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 oh, I, let me put it this way that would pass all scrutiny, that to me isn't important. That to me isn't what's in view. Yeah. I'm just contrasting to, to the things about the statements about the Trinity, about Christ and who he was, and the other things in the creed that are highly important. And in the other creeds mm-hmm. that we hang our hat on, Yes. those things are really important, whereas... Yeah, and I may be overstating my, you know, overplaying my hand, overstating my position. You're exactly right. I mean, if it's in the creed, it, you know, it, it's certainly important. And I think the key with the descent into hell is precisely these points that the confessions articulate. I mean, those are hills to die on. They're worth holding on to. They're worth confessing, no doubt about it. Um, but I think there's a, there's a lot of freedom remaining and a lot of room to move in this article that there may not be in other articles. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, primarily there, just given the, the loose nature of the scriptural foundation and the loose nature of the 2,000 year for us treatment of this, I put it in a slightly different category. We ought to be lenient with one another if we have uh, different nuances about our understanding with regard to the descent into hell. I mean, as Lutherans, as long as we're confessing, confessing what the confessions teach, that's all good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 83, very bottom. A traditional Roman Catholic view interpreted the descent as Christ's soul. There's the first difference, as Christ's soul, not, his, not, in, uh, not in body, Going to the limbus patrum, that's the limbo of the fathers, and this is thought to be, in Roman Catholic theology, still to this day, this is thought to be an anteroom of hell. So in Roman Catholic theology, 16th century and now, hell consists of three chambers. Hell proper, where the damned go, the limbus Patrum is an anteroom, and the limbus in, or the limbo in phantom is the is another anteroom. So the truly damned go to hell proper. The unbelieving of the Old Testament fathers go to the limbus patrum, and the limbus in phantom that's the limbo of the infants. That's the unbaptized infants go to this limbo. So it's all it's all called hell, just you know the same way you would call your your house. Uh, you know, your house is all your house, but um, it has a porch or an enclosed porch. It's still your house, but it's not really your house. It's, you know, that kind of thing. So that's their conception of, of hell. Where does this come from? Not the scriptures. Yeah, not the scriptures. Um, and then their view of, of, of heaven is really also that heaven has its own ante room, and that's purgatory. So that's the front room. That's the enclosed porch before you get into heaven proper. Where does that come from as a, like in terms of a space or a place? Not in the scriptures. Okay, 
So that's a traditional Roman Catholic view interpreted at the descent of Christ's soul going into the Limbus Patrum, the haven for Old Testament saints who are waiting for the completion of the atonement by Christ before they could enter heaven, which is also, I think, kind of honestly, a simplistic way of understanding the death of Christ. Where, when Enoch uh, was taken up into heaven, when Elijah was taken up into heaven, what on earth does that mean? If there's a limbus patrum and if the Old Testament saints couldn't go into heaven because Christ had not actually temporally, chronologically made atonement for sins, how on earth did they get up there? They couldn't have. Yeah. So, I, I mean, even something simple like that overturns this. This is just, this doesn't have much, um, much weight, I don't think. Furthermore, Christ is the one who's crucified before the foundation of the world. And so his, his crucifixion in, you know, the year 33 AD or whenever it was, that crucifixion then works in the past and in the future. It blankets and envelops the whole of creation. That's why it can be said in the scriptures that he's crucified before the foundation of the world. All right, well, there's one error. We're not going to go that way with the, the emptying of the limbus patrum. And here's another. Calvin and his followers, these are the Reformed, understood the phrase to be an explanation of the suffering of Jesus and not as an actual event occurring between the death and resurrection. Here, quoting from Calvin's Institutes, the point is that the creed sets forth what Christ suffered in the sight of men and then appositely speaks of that invisible and incomprehensible judgment which he underwent in the sight of God in order that we might know not only that Christ's body was given as the price for our redemption, but that he paid a greater and more excellent price in suffering in his soul the terrible torments of a condemned and forsaken man. Again, then, you can see that for Calvin, that's the soul, as with Rome that descends into hell. And then it's not an actual event. It's not an actual descent to an actual place that occurs between uh, the death and resurrection, as the creed puts it. So there's another erroneous view, at least on a couple of points, from Calvin. Similar to this view, Scare writes, is the one which considers the phrase to be in opposition to, and hence an explanation of the phrase, Jesus died. This view is adopted in many contemporary liturgical uses of the Apostles' Creed, including the Lutheran Book of Worship. In other words, that was really where we began, that in confessing the descent into hell, you're saying he entered the realm of the dead, was buried and entered the realm of the dead. Whether you understand that more poetically or more literally doesn't really matter. And that, that position um, simply can't be held if you're going to hold to what the confessions have to say. Um, this, was, uh, this view is adopted in many contemporary liturgical uses, including the Lutheran Book of Worship, the LBW, which was like, what was it, 1980s, early 80s, like 80, 81, or was it 79, something like that, and um, became the ELCA uh, hymnal. These two views, Scare writes, which see the descent as an explanation either of the suffering of Jesus 
or of the fact of his death, hold that it is part of the humiliation that Christ's resurrection is the first and that Christ's resurrection is the first step of his glorification. Another view teaches that Christ's descent to hell was a continuation of the preaching of salvation which Jesus did while on earth. That was one of the early church views I referred to, and, I, and people still hold to this today, to be sure. Um, this idea that, that Christ either was or in even some weird theory still is preaching salvation in hell to those who go down. So they've got, they've got a second chance. Well, there's a variation on that theory. They've got a second chance or they don't, but either way, Christ is preaching there. So you can see that this is fertile ground for strange stuff. Scare continues, those holding this view are divided between those who see it as an actual event and those who see it as mythological. And I, I don't know what he means by mythological. I suspect he's using that in the same way I've been using the language of poetic. Um, it's not, it's not actual or literal in the technical sense, the way you might picture it in your mind. It's just more a matter of speech. Both viewpoints are inherently universalistic in that they teach that people originally condemned or not having heard the gospel are giving a chance, given a chance to repent. So, again, not strictly universalistic in the sense that everyone is automatically saved, but at least universalistic in the sense that everybody gets a second chance. Either everybody is automatically saved, kind of crass universalism, or everybody gets a second chance, which is a subtle universalism. So we're going to reject all of that. I mean, again, what is Scare doing here for us? He's really just delineating uh, many, many errors that we cannot hold. And so thus, again, the import of this article, chiefly negative, and don't hold these errors that end up messing up the person and work of Christ. Uh, but then it, when it comes to like really positively stating, what you're going to see the Lutherans do is cling pretty, pretty strongly to 1 Peter 3, and uh, that really then is our foundation for positively stating what it does, what, what Christ is doing when he descends into hell. All right, where we left off, middle of that paragraph, top paragraph on page 84, the formula of concord does not duplicate any of these because it holds to an appearance of Christ who went in both body and soul in hell to proclaim victory over Satan. Quote, it is enough to know that Christ went to hell, destroyed hell for all believers, and has redeemed them from the power of death of the devil and of the eternal damnation of the hellish jaws, end quote, from the formula of Concord. So, I mean, I think that that is uh, representative of the Lutheran position. It is enough to know. We're gonna, what we're going to assert positively is actually going to be very little and not controversial. Scare continues. Making the article complex for a confessional Lutheran theology is the fact that Luther's Torgau sermon, which is authoritative for Formula of Concord Solid Declaration 9, does not make use of 1 Peter 3, 18 through 19 the locus classicus for Christ's descent to hell. That means the, the 
classic locus or the classic proof text that's used, at least in Lutheran circles, for uh, Christ's descent into hell. Um, it's used more broadly in Lutheran circles too. But the interesting thing here that also makes it complex, as I mentioned earlier, is that the early church fathers don't seem to rely very heavily on 1 Peter 3 at all. Augustine thought that that 1 Peter 3 wasn't even talking about the descent into hell. You know, when he goes to... Pre- we'll, we'll take a look at this next week. We'll look at 1 Peter 3, and so this will be a lot less mysterious. But the language of Christ dying and then being made alive in the Spirit, uh, that's, all, that's all reference to the crucifixion and resurrection. But then when Peter talks about him... Uh, descending to preach to the spirits before uh, who were disobedient in the days of Noah, Augustine sees that as a reference to a historical event that must have happened before the flood, not to an event that took place between the death and resurrection of Jesus. So there's a lot of, uh, like I said, you're not going to be very satisfied with this chapter because it raises more questions than it gives answers. But we'll, we'll delve into 1 Peter 3 and... Uh, next week, so you've got that in your background. But uh, just take a look at what uh, Scare's saying here. You know, Luther's Torgau sermon is authoritative. That's the one preached in 1533. And um, it doesn't even mention 1 Peter 3. So that complicates things a bit further. Scare continues, the sermon seems rather to rely more on Jesus' parable of the strong man, which in the Synoptic Gospels serves to explain his exorcising demons. References to Matthew 12, Mark 3, Luke 11. You remember this, um, how, can you, how can you plunder a strong man's house unless he is first bound? Once he is bound, then you can plunder his house. I mean, that's essentially the, the text Luther is using. That's some of the complexity, uh, Felix, when you said, what are the scriptural references? Luther might well quote these texts just mentioned about the binding of the strong man. Because what Luther sees in, the, in Christ descending to earth and exercising demons from people is precisely the binding. They're not allowed to do this thing which they want. They're bound. The binding of Satan and his powers, which culminates then in his descent into hell where he's bound the strong man. We'll look at that too, uh, as particularly as we look at, um, I think it's the reference to Revelation uh, chapter 20, verse 3. We'll look at that next week. All right, so you have Luther's sermons seeming to rely more heavily on uh, the binding of the strong man, those texts. Luther then says, these two traditions should be presented separately and then brought together. The two traditions, meaning on the one hand, the 1 Peter 3 tradition, and on the other hand, the more nebulous uh, binding of the strong man tradition that Luther uses in Torgau. See, Luther uses in Torgau binding of the strong man. The confessions use 1 Peter 3. So he's going to take us on a tour of these two traditions and then how they unite together in what is really the Lutheran doctrine, limited as it may be, on Christ's descent into hell. I know you will be waiting anxiously all week. All right, the Lord be with you.